let's start. I know we've been praying for a few minutes, but let's begin with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll we'll see where the Spirit takes us from there. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this evening and for our good friends who have gathered for food, for prayer, to celebrate Holy Communion, and now to think for a bit about your word and about uh, the life to which you have called us in the church. Uh, be with us, Lord. Uh, use my lips. Speak through them, Lord. Use all of our minds, Lord, uh, to think about these things together. And then, Lord, we pray that before we're finished tonight, you might set our hearts on fire with love for you. Amen. Amen. I woke up this morning to uh, really sad news. The world has felt a little bit colder today. And the reason I think it's felt colder is that First time in any of our lives, you may hear 100 years old, I don't think so. First time in 99 years. Billy Graham's not here, prayed for us. Excuse me. I went to see Billy Graham when I was 16 years old. Some of you have heard this story, and I apologize. I won't drag it on too much, but. I'd been 16 for about a week, and uh, it was a Friday night, and uh, I wanted to drive my father's car, and I needed a good excuse. <laughs> uh, true story. It was a brand shiny new, one of those big Oldsmobile 98s. You remember those things? Uh, that was the same, same car, by the way, just to kind of tip you off that Marie and I first dated in. If that, <laughs> Good car for that purpose, I would say, guys. <laughs> uh, at, at any rate, uh, at any rate, uh, I, w I, w I drove that car out to hear Bill Billy Graham uh, preach at uh, Carter Finley Stadium, which is NC State University football stadium uh, in in Raleigh. And it was raining. It was a messy night. I shouldn't have been out driving. I've been driving all two weeks and one one week in my life. And my father still shouldn't let me take the car no matter where I was going. Traffic was bad, there was a mob there, it was raining cats and dogs. And what I remember is, down in the middle of the field, they had a small platform for Billy Graham to stand on and preach from. It's raining cats and dogs. There's no shelter over him. Nobody's there holding an umbrella over his head. He's standing there holding his floppy Bible, wide open, it's getting soaked, and he's wearing you, you guys remember those little light London fog raincoats? That you still got wet, right? Did you ever have one? And that's how he's dressed, and he's standing down there preaching his heart out to about, I'm going to guess, 20,000 people on this Friday night. And he's getting colder, and he's getting soaked, and he doesn't have any notes. He just has the Bible in front of him, and it's getting wet. And when I looked at how uncomfortable he had to be and how drenched he was standing down there preaching the Word of God, that was the moment when I knew that I never wanted to do that for a living. <laughs> but I still, still remember what, uh, what went on after he finished preaching. They played the song. You all know you probably sing it better than... Just as I am without one clue, except that Jesus died for me. Do you know? 
they're playing it, and I'm there. All this is new to me now. <laughs> I don't know what's going on around me. I'm, I'm just there. By, I'm, I'm in the audience. But I see, you know, a person here, a person there get up to go down to the field and stand in the mud around Billy's platform. And I see then 10 and 20 and then 30 and 40 and a couple of hundred. Going, and pretty soon there must have been 10,000 people down there assembled around the platform with Billy Graham who was going to pray for them and, uh, and, 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 and uh, ask Jesus to enter their hearts and claim their lives. And uh, I've never forgotten that night. I can tell you what Billy Graham preached, too. I don't remember the exact words, but every sermon he ever preached was the same. What Billy Graham did, and it's brilliant, and if the preachers in our church were doing it, we, we'd, be, we'd be growing like Topsy. He talked about the need and the brokenness and the anxiety and the poverty and the sinfulness, not afraid to use the word sin, of our lives. And then he talked about how that need, poverty, brokenness, and sin would be answered in the person of Jesus Christ. That was his sermon. Does it work? And somehow... Billy Graham was able to touch that soft spot, even, even in the heart of a 16-year-old who just wanted to drive his daddy's car, that made a difference. And I couldn't tell you his exact words, as I say, but I remember the sermon and I remember the moment. And I didn't go down to the field. That was a little bit much to ask of a 16-year-old unaccustomed to that style of worship and sitting there by himself. But I think in my heart I did go down to the field that night, and it was an important, uh, important event in my life, uh, my young life uh, as a Christian. And so today, when I heard that he was dead, it uh, it's made a difference to me. World, at least for a little while, just a little bit lonelier, a little bit colder. But I'll tell you this: my theory is that. When as faithful and devout and uh, wonderful a man as he uh, dies, he wakes up in the next moment in the presence of the Lord. And uh, I'm sure that's where he is at this moment. And you and I are in luck. He's praying for us right now. How about that? Uh, I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about Lent. It strikes me that, uh, that having uh, Billy Graham die today is a, a real mark of Lent for us. We're, we're, we're give, giving up the world's greatest preacher. Uh, starting Lent on Ash Wednesday, I was thinking about um, the words I was saying and the words I was going to preach. And how, um, what, a, what, a, what a strange sort of disjuncture there, there was between the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples about what our spiritual lives are supposed to look like and then the things that we were going to do in that very same sentence. I don't know that very same service. I don't know whether that ever strikes any of you that way, but... Let me read to you what, um, what, what Jesus said to his uh, disciples. He said this, he said, Beware, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Get that? Be careful. Don't, don't exhibit your righteousness in order to get credit for it. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their, their award. They, they had a good audience. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. <gasps> Heaping up empty phrases, how's that happen? As the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Clever. Clever and great orators and sophisticated words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this. And then He gave us the prayer we just said together, the Lord's Prayer. Well, Ash Wednesday begins with that reading of words from our Lord, but it begins with what often strikes me to be kind of a peculiar follow-up in terms of our action. Because we do make a bit of a show of our religion and our righteousness, don't we? We have the imposition of ashes on our forehead. We get on our knees. One of the few times during the church here, Episcopalians do that anymore, and how I miss praying on my knees all the time. And, and we, we make a, a bit of a display of penitence, of sorrow, of an acknowledgement of our sinfulness, and somehow that seems to not be in perfect accord with what it is Jesus has instructed us to do. Now, before we end tonight, I want to come around full circle and try to reconcile it all for you. But I want us to hold that thought. How can it be that we read those words and then do the things we do? Ash Wednesday, this whole celebration of the season of Lent, probably started sometime in uh, the 7th century, very medieval practices. And it started uh, not with a simple service on Ash Wednesday and 40 days and nights of giving up chocolate or alcohol or cigarettes or whatever people are giving up this year. I, I gave up electronic games this year. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it began rather with people actually would go to the monastery for 40 days and 40 nights, fast full-time virtually, maybe eating just some, some, uh, some, some, some scraps of bread and tepid water and maybe a little gruel, and saying prayers constantly through those 40 days in order to get their lives right and their souls together uh, for, uh, for the Easter celebration that was coming. Now, 
part of what was at work in that celebration of Lent in the medieval church had to do with being uh, restored and re regaining favor with the church uh, and to get right uh, in the eyes of their bishop. Remember, bishops had a lot more power in those days. Um, over time, though, Ash Wednesday and Lent have evolved into uh, what we see today, almost universal practice, at least among liturgical churches, and I think others. I've, I've seen a few, uh, uh, not many Baptist churches, but Methodists and Lutherans, and well, Lutherans, yes, and Presbyterians I've seen are celebrating Ash Wednesday and Lent now. We, have, we no longer put on sackcloth and ashes or move to a monastery, but we, uh, but, but we give up donuts and, we, uh, uh, and electronic games, and we, and we uh, 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 stop saying hallelujah for the season, and we say prayers in order to attempt to get our hearts right uh, with the Lord in anticipation of the Easter celebration. My feeling about Lent is that there still sort of hangs over Lent a kind of, uh, a kind of darkness, maybe a little bit of gloom that seems a little bit medieval to me. Uh, church changes so dramatically for these six weeks or so before Easter that it really makes a difference. And it seems to, at moments, run counter to the... Um, message of liberty, of new birth, of freedom, of the great gift of God's love and grace that you and I know so well from the other seasons of the, of the year. Um, Ash Wednesday and Lent have become for most of us a time period in which we take on self-imposed discipline. Self-imposed disciplines. We, we, we create some new laws for ourselves to have to obey. And I think there's a great spiritual danger in creating a set of new laws that we have to obey because we're setting ourselves up for failure. You know, you, you may give up chocolate, but somewhere along the line, you're going to run into a maraschino cherry. You, I may give up electronic games, but somewhere there's going to be a ball game that I'm going to glue myself to and ignore my wife on account. It, we're bound to be not as good as we set out to be. And Paul makes it pretty clear, I think our Lord makes it clear, that the law can't save us. And if the law can't save us, then no new self-imposed rules that we're setting for ourselves are going to do it either. You all know the kind of, uh, of uh, gloom and uh, 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 pessimism that some Christians have during this season. I have one bishop friend who, who signs notes to me or emails that he writes during Lent. He, he, he says, hoping that you're having a suitably miserable Lent. <laughs> and, for some reason, that doesn't spiritually tend to do it for me, right? Um, I, I, I walked in this afternoon. Uh, where's Mimi Crosby? Is she here? Mimi, did you come to this? No. Mimi, Mimi was sitting there talking to, uh, to, to, to Beth, 
uh, in the office. And I walked in and just automatically was singing, uh, uh, me, me, Crosby, hallelujah, hallelujah. Of course, I'd do that for all of you. But then I thought, no, I can't do that hallelujah even for her. I've got to be, got to be more serious, holier, more devout. In the Bible, we were, we're, we're met by the kind of gloom and pessimism and self-righteousness of which I'm speaking. You remember how the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbled because Jesus was eating with sinners. Remember that? Uh, there was a really prudish anger at Jesus because a lot of the people who saw him thought that he was a drunkard or uh, uh, a glutton, uh, always feasting, never fasting. Uh, and the people in Jesus' time exploded with moral righteous indignation because Jesus dared to speak a word of forgiveness to a paralytic. <gasps> Who gave you the authority to do that, they said. Um, remember the joylessness and the self-righteousness of the Pharisee's prayer as he thanked God that he wasn't like the sinner in the back of the, of the synagogue. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that man. Uh, and then there's one of my favorites always, the complaining of those recruited to go into the fields to work who left early in the day, they're complaining, because those who were hired later in the day got paid just the same. And there is perhaps one of the greatest, not perhaps, one of the greatest scenes in all of literature, certainly of scripture, in which the unhappy brother is staring through the window as, as, a, uh, as a thesis prepared for his uh, straying brother now come home, and how he whined to their father, you never gave me a kid so I could throw a party for my friends, right? Those are the kinds of attitudes, those are the kinds of, 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 of reality of an attempt to earn righteousness that has the real potential to make each of us into angry, grudge-filled complainers. There is a very fine, I think, and an easily slipped across line between being sanctified, between getting the essence of the season and attempting to do those things that the season was designed to do and becoming sullen, unhappy, and even depressed. A church full of people, and I've seen a few churches like this, a church full of, this one's not, by the way. I haven't encountered anyone not smiling and laughing tonight. I was delighted to see uh, brownies being passed around after supper, too. <laughs> but there are churches which are full of people who think they can earn God's favor by taking on a super serious attitude during Lent, and who think that depriving themselves for the next 40 days of alcohol or sweets or meat or whatever is going to get them to heaven a little bit earlier. 
if your church is like that, if you are like that, then inevitably life for you is going to be a life of mournfulness and depression. Uh, St. Matthew, quoting Jesus, is reminding us that the repentance to which we are called is not an exercise of piety in order to get right with God. That we have God's grace already. We know God's love. We know his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, because he's chosen to give it to us as a free gift and not because of anything we're going to earn. Likewise, that the Lenten season isn't just an opportunity to display that rightness before others. I remember when my son Gus, who's now what, 35 years old, I guess, uh, had just gone through confirmation class. We were in Charleston, South Carolina, St. James Church, James Island. And this particular Sunday, uh, Ed Salmon, our bishop, had come and had confirmed Gus. And uh, Gus and I must have been in the fall because the Sunday afternoon we were sitting watching a football game. Must have been fall. And a commercial came on the television for Jenny Craig. Anybody know what Jenny Craig is? It, it's uh, why am I only one raising my hand? Uh, but J Jenny Craig is a diet thing, like nutricism. You buy their food, you eat only their food the way they have it portioned out, and you get to be thin, right? Jenny Craig's advertising hook that fall, and why they showed this during a football game, I don't know, but the theme of the commercial was you deserve to be thin for your wedding. That was the theme of the, that was the, theme of, the uh, of the commercial. And so my son and I are sitting there together on the sofa. We're watching the Giants and the Redskins. And this commercial comes on and the cheery woman's voice says, you deserve to be thin for your wedding. And Gus Howard, just out of his confirmation class, a good student, leapt off the sofa, stood in the middle of the floor, and spoke back to the television and said, no, you don't deserve to be thin for your wedding. You deserve to burn in hell. But by the grace of God, you may be thin for your wedding. <laughs> True story. He got it. The free gift of God, not something you earn. Now, do you begin to see what the deeper meaning of Lent might be for us and where the pitfalls are for us? We, we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that anything we do, anything we don't do, anything we give up, anything we say, anything we don't say, hallelujah, hallelujah, is going to get us to heaven faster. God has given us the gift he has given us. And the purpose of Lent is entirely different. It, repentance, as we use it in terms of Lent, during this season of the year, is in fact lies in seeing the uselessness of attempting to earn what can only be given. Seeing the uselessness of it. It's acknowledging way before we make our half-baked attempts to 
get it right, that God has already preceded our response by the gift of His Son. By the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, given for us when? When we didn't deserve Him. Given for us when we didn't deserve Him and with no expectation that He would ever be repaid. Here, I think, is the bottom line for this particular season of the year, if you'll, you'll permit me. Here's where the, uh, the, the rubber meets the road, or if you really want to hear me butcher a metaphor, here's where the ash meets the forehead. <laughs> Repentance is not the first thing. It's not the condition which gets us into God's good grace. God's good grace is the first thing. You remember? Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. God's good grace is the first thing. It is the means of repentance which leads us to conversion and the turning of our hearts and our lives toward God. Great psalm that we said just couple of days ago, I think it was this past Sunday, Psalm. It's got to be one of my two or three favorites. Psalm 25. God, the, the psalmist David, who I, I think, who, who, who knew whereof he spoke, whereof he prayed, right? Not entirely a good guy, you remember? Uh, they wanted to revoke his honorary degree after what he did to Bathsheba. Um, he prays in the psalm, he says, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth, my misdoings, my sinfulness. Remember, remember me, God, not the things I did. And when you look at me, dear Lord, see your son. See me clothed in his sparkling white garments of righteousness, enjoying His perfection, His sinlessness. And Lord, for that moment, when you see me and when you judge me, impute His goodness, His righteousness, His sinlessness to me. Give me that gift, O God. Remember not my sins. Remember Psalm 25, Psalm 25. Jesus uh, did not first ask the tax collectors and the sinners with whom he dined what they were giving up for Lent. The father of the prodigal son didn't inquire into the sincerity of his son's confession and return home. He did not ask to see the son's credit card receipts. First, there was love. First, there was love. And then, true repentance followed. Jesus was never interested that any of the people he met should become despondent, gloomy, or depressed. He was interested solely that they should know him and love him 
and through that love come closer to the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth is, the truth is that without the word of grace, without the recognition of unmerited love which can never be earned but which is always ours as a free gift, the cold ashes of Ash Wednesday on our foreheads represent little more than the curse of the law. But, if we remember the message of grace, we remember the love of God, we remember the gift of Jesus Christ given for us, never to be repaid, never to be earned, never to be merited. If we remember that, then the Lenten season becomes like, like, a, like the, the, the opening of a, of a sort of hard shell that's, that's grown around this, this crustacean self that I am inside. It's removing that hard shell and, and revealing a heart, vulnerable, hurting, broken, sinful, needy, revealing that heart in order that God's touch might enter through the opening in the shell, touch us, heal us, and win that heart for himself. That's what the Lenten season is about. Revealing our true selves to ourselves. <laughs> Revealing our true selves to ourselves. The order that God may touch the deepest pain that we know. That's what Billy Graham did when he preached. First part of every sermon, pulling back the shell, revealing the need, the pain, the anger, the angst, the worry, the brokenness, the despair, revealing it all, the sickness, the, the grief, the death, and the fear of death, revealing it and opening the shells of thousands and then hundreds of thousands and millions of people so that as he preached, God might reach in and touch and heal and transform. Dear friends, Every one of us needs to hear the gospel the way Billy Graham preached it. Kind of like the way John the Baptist preached it, you know. And if you've never heard Billy or John the Baptist preach, you need to hear him because only then can the word of God enter your life, touch you, heal you, transform you, and forever make you different. So, those ashes you got on Ash Wednesday, wear them very lightly. Wear them very lightly. Remember that the foundation of repentance is love and grace. And permit those ashes to become for you a sign of love, 
a reminder of grace and a seal of God's faithfulness to us. Let them remind us that we're mortal, that we're going to die, that we are ashes and to ash we will return and that therefore humility is the path to God. But remember too that when it's all said and done, the important part of that day and of this season is not going to be the dark smudge on your forehead, but the smile on your face and the joy of God's love in your hearts. Amen. Dear friends, if you have a comment about that or a question, a personal testimony, I'm glad to hear it all. Yes, ma'am. I, let me tell you, what I, the first thing I did this morning when I saw that uh, Billy Graham had died, I, I went to the computer, and that's when I saw the little, uh, did I tell you about the little interview with the woman saying, well, I didn't tell you that? Woman, some, some TV interviewer had Billy Graham there back in the 1960s, and took questions from the audience, and of course the first one who stood up said, Reverend Graham, uh, Tell us, in your whole life, what's the worst sin you ever committed? Don't you dare ask me that. No. I love Billy Graham's answer. He said, Christians don't talk that way. We know that God views all sins the same. Jesus tells us that, doesn't he? He said, the, the, the lust in my heart is as bad as the adultery of the man on the corner, the my, my hatred or anger at my neighbor is as if I've murdered him. God's pretty clear about that. You know, so what's the worst sin? I got up this morning, you know, and haven't stopped sinning since. I need God's love, mercy, and grace. Dorothy knows that. You know that about me. Um, the thing, but I, I, I then went to... Um, uh, the, the, the internet website for um, a television station in my hometown, Raleigh, W-R-A-L. And some of you may have met David Crabtree. David is the anchor man on that TV station. And he's a deacon in the Episcopal Church. Fine, fine man. Good, good, good minister and, uh, and a good servant of the Lord. I wanted to hear what David was saying about Billy Graham because not long ago visiting with David, I talked about... Uh, uh, Billy and his life, and David said, you know, the, the end's got to be getting close. And so I went here, we, well, they were interviewing David, whom they had just awakened in Korea, where he's covering the Olympics. And I texted him later and told him I heard him. He said, yeah, I was deep asleep when they called me, told me Billy Graham was, had died, and they put me on the air. But, uh, but, but, but David offered just remarkable insight and actually did one thing that was very courageous. He said just what you said. He said, Billy Graham is enjoying another life. Pretty good to hear a newsman say that on a television station, right? He's enjoying another life. He's, he, he's not in pain now. He's, he, he's whole. He's happy. He's with Ruth. All is well with Billy Graham.
So I thought that was good comment from a newsman on a TV station early in the morning. Yes, sir. <laughs> You're welcome. I'll, I'll give you tribute to him any day. He, he, the real tribute is to the, the Son of God who died for us. That's the real, because that's what, that's what Graham spent his life engraving upon our hearts. The love, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. That's the real real tribute that we bring this day and hopefully through this season. Great to be with you all. Thank you so much. God bless you. And uh, Joe, you've got a marvelous flock here. I, I want to put in a, want to put in a, kind of put in, in, in one, uh, 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 a little uh, 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 commercial announcement. This, this is a growing group. This group is much larger than it was last year when I was here for the same event. And I know your parish is growing, and I thank you for that. I commend you for that and the wonderful things you're doing to bring more and more people to know and love God in Jesus Christ are wonderful. And you warm my heart as you do that. Thank you so much. Pokemon. Now, don't ask me what Pokemon is, but I have an elderly friend who plays it with his grandchildren, so I'm jealous of him. Don't have any grandchildren, but I, I figured that if I, if I were going to give up a game, that'd be the one that would be a real sacrifice. I'll let you explain to me what it is later. <laughs> Why don't we all stand for a minute? <coughs> May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And may the God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless you and keep you this night and forevermore. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it.